Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, October 26th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, could a new generation of AI simulations help solve the mounting supply chain disruptions? Plus, the history and future of haunted houses. And Jeff Bezos is basically trying to start a WeWork in space. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The supply chain disruptions just keep on coming. Everyone's being told to get their holiday shopping done now, or ideally last month. And now it's not just certain products you might want to buy as gifts that are in short supply, but even the cardboard the packages come in. It's a big mess, with a ton of disparate and related causes that I've outlined ad nauseum on regular installments of the shortage report. Pandemic-caused factory and mill shutdowns, shipping container snags, labor shortages, extreme weather events. But with a magnifying glass hovering over various sectors of the supply chain, the heat is mounting, and fortunately, that's beginning to lead to solutions. A promising one is a type of AI-powered simulation called Digital Twins that Amazon has been using for years, but which other companies are beginning to implement as well. Quoting the MIT Technology Review, Digital twins seek to solve breakages in the supply chain by anticipating them before they happen and then using AI to figure out a workaround. The name captures the key idea of simulating a complex system in a computer, creating a kind of twin that mirrors real-world objects, from ports to products, and the processes they are a part of. Simulations have been a part of decision-making in industry for some years, helping people explore different product designs or streamline the layout of a warehouse. But the availability of large amounts of real-time data and computing power means that more complex processes can be simulated for the first time, including the chaos of global supply chains that often rely on numerous vendors and transportation networks." End quote. For years, most companies have depended on just-in-time delivery, or JIT delivery. It's an inventory management technique in which you only order items as needed in order to reduce warehouse costs and improve efficiency. Despite it long being the gold standard, especially for smaller companies, just-in-time delivery has failed many of them during the pandemic. Companies just can't keep items in stock, whether it's the actual goods for sale or acquiring the necessary components for production. Those who only had just enough are losing out on profits because they simply can't keep up with demand. Digital twins, meanwhile, can sometimes require you to have a lot more stock on hand. This is something that companies were resistant to for a while because it means having a pay-to-store inventory that you may not need immediately. But with how strapped companies have been for the past 18 months, having had some of that extra stock on hand would have been a godsend. David Simchi-Levy from MIT, who has helped build digital twins for several large companies, notes that companies that used to be obsessed with hyper-efficiency and cutting costs are now willing to pay for resiliency. And Digital Twins aims to strike a balance between the comfort of extra stock on hand and the efficiency of getting the right extra stock by essentially forecasting what will happen. Quoting again from the MIT Tech Review, By exploring different possible scenarios, companies can identify the balance between efficiency and resiliency that works best for them. Add deep reinforcement learning, which lets an AI learn through trial and error what actions to take in different situations, and Digital Twins become machines 
means for exploring what-if questions. What if there's a drought in Taiwan and the water shortage shuts down microchip manufacturing? A digital twin could predict the risk of this happening, trace the impact it would have on your supply chain, and, using reinforcement learning, suggest what actions to take to minimize the harm. If you're a car maker in the U.S. Midwest, a digital twin might suggest you buy extra components from a distributor on the West Coast that still has surplus. Digital twins draw on as much data as possible to run their simulations and train their AIs. There's logistical information about the company and its suppliers, accounting for inputs such as inventory and shipping data. Then there's data on consumer behavior, based on market analysis and financial projections. And data about the wider world, such as geopolitical and socioeconomic trends. Simchi Levy has even drawn data from social media to predict people's behavior, especially during the pandemic. Google's digital twin can be plugged into Google Earth and takes into account global weather patterns, end quote. Others are less robust, but the concept is the same. But even though more and more companies are now hopping on board, it's not going to be equal across the board. Larger companies will still have an advantage because they can take a risk on a new technique. They can store that extra stock for longer. Smaller companies won't be able to weather potential losses. It'll take them longer to convert, and the sooner you adopt a new technology, the better the benefits. Some of them, and also larger ones, surprisingly, are still conducting a lot of their business on paper, which means the AI can't analyze any of that data. It has to be digitized first. But perhaps with some government assistance, smaller companies can implement digital twins and keep up with the bigger ones that are already starting to see some of the benefits. And it won't be a quick change or solve everything. Simchi Levy notes that it takes about a year and a half for a company individually to see the benefits. But hey, maybe with the broader adoption of digital twins, this holiday season will be the last one in which we have to deal with supply chain disruptions. On October 1st, I kicked off the month strong by going out to Philadelphia and attending Halloween nights at the Eastern State Penitentiary. It's a huge 15-attraction experience that's half-haunted and half-educational, with themed bars, haunted houses, and artistic experiences spread throughout the many acres of America's most historic prison. And the penitentiary's mission of teaching about criminal justice reform is present throughout. Now, I'm not a huge Haunted House fan, but this was a unique spin that I really enjoyed. Like, the haunted parts weren't too scary, which was just my speed, but you know, I know a lot of people love being scared, especially in a relatively controlled setting like a haunted house. But how did haunted houses even become a thing? Like, when did someone decide to put together a few rooms of gory, heart-stopping visuals and charge people to walk through it? Smithsonian Magazine points to one of the most notable progenitors of the haunted house as being Marie Tussaud's very first wax sculpture exhibit. Yes, Madame Tussaud herself. She and her exhibit, originally called the Chamber of Horrors, began not with sculptures honoring beloved celebrities of the time, but rather with the decapitated likenesses of Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI, and other French leaders. 
That was early in the 1800s, but by the turn of the 20th century, performances, exhibitions, and other spectacles meant to shock people were growing in number. There were sideshows, of course, and also things like French director Max Maury's stage plays that were so graphic in their depictions of things like dismemberment that audience members regularly passed out. And there were fairgrounds, at least in England, that did start including what they called ghost houses in the 1910s. But it was during the Great Depression when haunted houses as we'd recognize them really started picking up. Like several Halloween traditions, haunted houses were made up by parents and community leaders trying to find alternative activities for children and teenagers who would otherwise run amok on Halloween, pranking, vandalizing, and harassing everyone and everything in sight. And seriously, the start of the 20th century was the height of Halloween arson and violent mischief. Things were really getting out of control. So trick-or-treating, where you literally agreed to be good to get a treat, and organized, supervised parties were put in place to deter kids from behaving maliciously on Halloween. Neighborhood families would get together and all decorate their houses or basements with a theme, and then the kids could go from one house to the next being delightfully frightened. But you may not be too shocked to learn that the reason more sophisticated haunted houses that people charged for took off, like so many things, is because of Disney. Their Haunted Mansion attraction, which opened in 1969, completely blew people away with its realistic illusions. As Halloween historian Lisa Morton explained in her book Trick or Treat, what Disney did that changed the game was use new technologies that made ghosts and other supernatural elements seem eerily realistic. There was no suspension of disbelief needed like one might for a sheet hung on a tree acting as a ghost. This is always a thing to remember when you go to Disney's parks. While all of the animatronics and such seem quaint, if not hokey, to us now, when they debuted, they blew people away. You know, the fact that all the figures looked like they were talking and moving all on their own was creepy enough. But add the illusions like refracted light projections in the Haunted Mansion, and people were pretty freaked out. The success of the Haunted Mansion led to an explosion of ticketed haunted house attractions throughout the U.S., some from competitors like Knott's Berry Farm and others from smaller, often charitable organizations using the attraction as a fun way to raise money for their cause. The big, super scary and gory ones came to be during the golden era of slasher films in the early 80s, populated with actors in Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, and Jason Masks. Those ones got really professional really quickly and started stamping out the little guys like the charity groups. Small local organizations still sometimes run their own haunted houses, but most patrons go into it knowing that they're not getting nearly the same experience as a well-advertised haunted house out in the woods that costs upwards of $50 a pop. And now, there are so many different kinds of haunted attractions out there. Some have turned into escape rooms or obstacle courses. There are even some that are full-on haunted camping out in the woods all night. Of course, there are the hell houses from evangelical churches. And last year saw an uptick in drive through haunted houses so that people could safely distance. From my perspective, it seems like the pandemic just caused haunted houses to get even more creative and for more people to crave the experience. But Larry Kirchner, president of the Haunted House Association, actually told Smithsonian Magazine that he's not sure haunted houses are here to stay. Every business will eventually fail, he told them. So, quote, we just want to last as long as we possibly can, end quote. 
It's tough for me to imagine haunted houses going out of style altogether. Maybe they'll just continue to become more all-around experiences, you know, not just about walking through and having some deranged clowns jump out at you, but something that involves some puzzle-solving or athletic pursuit or a bit more performance and interaction, maybe some education, like the one at Eastern State Penitentiary. I think people are looking for deeper experiences these days, but I don't think that means haunted houses are anywhere close to on their way out. First, there was the guy trying to put ads in space, and now Jeff Bezos is planning what he calls a business park in space. Quoting Mashable, Jeff Bezos's space exploration company Blue Origin announced with Sierra Space and several other partners that it plans to build the first commercial space station in low Earth orbit. That means it won't be a government-run station, but will theoretically be open to visitors and tenants to, as the company says, get an address in space. The companies are calling the station Orbital Reef, end quote. And from the BBC, quote, Promotional material released by the company claims the station will be a mixed-use business park in space and will host up to 10 people. The 32,000-square-foot station would provide customers with an ideal location for filmmaking in microgravity or conducting cutting-edge research and said it would also include a space hotel, end quote. This business park and space hotel would not replace the International Space Station, at least I hope not, but it is worth pointing out that the ISS is showing its age, with tons of repairs in order, and Russia announcing they won't send cosmonauts there after 2025 because the outdated craft is so likely to cause an incident. NASA is seeking proposals to replace the ISS, having announced a $400 million private contract award earlier this year, but Blue Origin doesn't have great luck with NASA contracts, having most recently lost to SpaceX on their bid to build the moon lander that will drop astronauts off on the moon in the upcoming Artemis mission. But Blue Origin doesn't seem to be trying to replicate the ISS with this business park in space. Quoting again from Mashable, a business park is a collection of office buildings with some grass or, hey, even a water feature or two in between structures if you're lucky. It's like a park, but for grown-ups who spend the majority of their waking hours in a cubicle under fluorescent light. And that, apparently, is Jeff Bezos' vision for the future of humanity in space. Beyond stating that Orbital Reef will be the hot new home for capitalists everywhere, the announcement is otherwise light on details. Visitors will get access to round-trip travel and crew members, but there's no mention of cost. The companies say it will begin operating in the second half of the decade. What a bright future we have to look forward to indeed. End quote. All right, well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.